And now let's turn to Daniel chapter 2. Our passage today is Daniel chapter 2, verse 1 to 24. It's Daniel chapter 2, verses 1 to 24. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word from me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered the second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time, because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream, and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The, king, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was very angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions, companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and dis discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time uh, that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. And the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what it is in the darkness, and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king 
the interpretation. Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline. And we are continuing our Sunday morning teaching series today in the book of Daniel. It's a book where we are studying the question, how do we as people of faith live among people who don't necessarily share our faith? And so far we've seen that God very intentionally took some of his people, Daniel and his friends, from their homeland in Israel and brought them to the capital city of Babylon, into the heart of the Babylonian empire. And he dropped them into this very intense indoctrination program, the purpose of which was to replace their faith in God with a Babylonian worldview. But while they were studying, God gave them so much favor and so much wisdom that not only did they retain their faith, but they also graduated at the top of their class. And then they took up important positions in the Babylonian world. By any measure, they succeeded beyond all reasonable expectations. And if we were writing this story in the modern Western world, it'd be very tempting to end it right there and say something like, and they lived happily ever after. But we're not writing the story. God is. He has much bigger goals for these young men than for them to sit back, rest on their laurels, and live out the rest of their days going to work, putting in their time, coming home, and enjoying the best life that they possibly could in Babylon. Instead, God is just getting started. And he has his own kingdom goals that these four young men are going to play a part in. And he's not going to wait for some time in the far distant future to get them involved. He's going to do it right now. Pastor David just read in chapter 2, verse 1, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. And if you read the text closely, something jumps out at you. This dream happened in Nebuchadnezzar's second year. But chapter 1 told us that the Hebrew young men started a three-year program when Nebuchadnezzar became king. So how can he only be in his second year here when they've already completed three years? It's because of the way that the Babylonians counted a monarch's years. When a king started ruling, that was not considered his first year. Instead, it was called his ascension year. It was the year that he ascended to his throne. It's the zero year of his reign, if you want to think about it that way. And so the first official year only happens after he's already been on the throne. So if you're counting as a Babylonian, at this time, Nebuchadnezzar would have had his ascension year, his first year, and somewhere be in his second year. He'd have been on the throne three years when he had his dream, which means that this event takes place almost immediately after Daniel and his friends finished their schooling. They've barely graduated. They are newly minted wise men when Nebuchadnezzar, verse 12, is so furious with the wise men of his empire that he decides to kill all of them in a very brutal way, verse 5, to literally tear their bodies apart and destroy their houses, to erase any sign that they've ever existed. And that fate is what's facing Daniel and his friends immediately after they finish the program that God had sent them to Babylon to put them through. God's plan to send missionaries to Babylon has put his people in front of a firing squad. That's bad. God's plan will do that, not just in their lives, but also in yours. It will lead you into places that can at times be very, very dangerous. But it's even worse than that. 
because this is a firing squad that God set in motion. Think about how we got here. Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, a dream that was not the product of indigestion, not the product of his own subconscious mind and heart creating visions. There's something more to it than that. The dream troubled him. It kept him awake. He knew that there was a message for him. He knew that it was important, but he didn't know what this meant. Now, if you read to the end of the chapter, you realize that the dream does come from the Lord. And if you cheat and you go to the end of the chapter, you realize that even though it comes from the Lord, there's nothing here for Nebuchadnezzar to do with it. There's nothing for him to change. There's nothing for him to alter about how he conducts himself or his kingdom. Now, sometimes God gave kings warning dreams. Well over a millennia earlier, God gave the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, a warning dream, which another Israelite, Joseph, interpreted for him. And in that dream, God told Pharaoh that there would be seven years of really incredible harvests, followed by seven years of famine that would be so bad it would just wipe out those first seven years. It was a warning dream. It was a dream that Pharaoh could act on to take care of his people so they wouldn't face starvation. But the dream that God gives Nebuchadnezzar is not like that. There isn't anything for him to do. And yet God gives it to him, and it's this dream that puts God's people directly in harm's way. So God brought these people to the king's court, and as soon as he's made sure that they have positions of influence there, God intervenes in this world again to create conditions that put them in danger. Now, why did he do that? It's to set up a contest, to create a scenario that lets two conflicting worldviews tackle the same issue and show what each of those worldviews has to offer. God sets up a contest that pits two worldviews against each other, a contest that exposes the strength of the one and the weakness of the other. On the one side is Daniel and the wisdom that he brings to the situation, the wisdom that he relies on and the source of that wisdom, and on the other side are the Babylonian wise men and what they rely on. Now, we're not told here in this passage the specifics of what the Babylonians brought to the table, these magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers of verse 2. Astrologer is what the word Chaldean meant. Chaldean is sort of a uh, specialized word there. But in the ancient world, these magicians, sorcerers, enchanters, and astrologers were professional scholars. They were advisors to the king. They studied various things to help them understand the future. And so they learned how to read different omens, like the shapes and sizes of animal livers, or they studied dream elements. They had long lists of what someone's dream meant if it contained certain elements. This element means this, this element means that. And they were looking for ways to pierce the veil of the future so that someone, in this case the king, could make decisions now that would give them a better future. One commentator put it this way, they were the political consultants, the trend spotters, the religious gurus of the day, and Nebuchadnezzar wants them to help him understand what it is that he should be doing. Only, Nebuchadnezzar isn't giving them any data to work with. He's insisting that they come up with data that he already knows, data that he has in his head, this dream that he's had, and that's the test to know whether or not they're legitimate enough to tell him what the dream means. 
to tell him that their advice is actually valid. To which they respond, that's impossible. Only the gods can do something like that. Only a supernatural power could tell you what took place entirely in someone else's mind. And not what's taking place in there right now, but what took place in there a while ago, in the past. The wise men tell the king, there is no human ability to figure out something like that. Only a god can do that. But they say, verse 11, the gods don't live among the people. The implication here is that the gods could do this, but they're not going to. And there's no way to get the gods to tell us humans what it is that they know. In other words, they're saying to the king, we have reached the limitation here of human wisdom, the limitation of what wisdom can do. That's what sets up this contest. See, Daniel in chapter 1 had studied all of the Babylonian techniques that they knew. But he doesn't rely on them here in chapter 2 in order to answer the king's question. He relies on something else. He relies on someone else. He relies on there being a God who is above it all, who is transcendent. One who can know what takes place in someone's mind, and not just in the moment, but what took place in their mind earlier. And yet this God is not only transcendent, he's also willing to share what he knows. He's willing to be close to people. He's imminent, intimate even. But there are no techniques on this earth, nothing that you can discover here on your own that will twist his arm and make him give you an answer. You have to come to him on his terms. That's the contest that God sets up by the dream that he gave to Nebuchadnezzar. He created a space where these two rival conceptions of wisdom and knowledge from these two different sources could be evaluated. A space where they're both trying to answer one question, the question of where does real wisdom come from? Real wisdom that lets you make good decisions now based on what will take place in the future. Now don't skip lightly over that. Because what God is doing here, I'm going to put a very fine point on it, what God is doing here is he's picking a fight. If he had not given King Nebuchadnezzar this dream, there wouldn't be any problem between the king and his advisors. Which means that there would not be any problem between the king and God's people, between the king and Daniel and his friends. But God did give him this dream. Because God is provoking a showdown. Don't gloss over that. He has intervened in this world purposely to create a confrontation. It's a little bit like when God had the prophet Elijah challenge the prophets of Baal. This was earlier in Israel's history. Israel had been wavering between two opinions, between God, God, the one true God and between Baal. And they were not sure which one truly was God, which one they should worship. So God, through Elijah, set up a contest. Both sides, both parties would prepare an altar for a sacrifice, but they wouldn't light the wood under the sacrifice. Instead, Elijah would call on the Lord and the prophets of Baal would call on Baal and whichever God answered by sending fire down on the altar, that would clearly show who was the real God. God picked a fight with the false religion of Baal to show its impotence. He set two different worldviews on a collision course from which only one would survive. 
That's part of what God does in this world when it tries to reject him, when it tries to have nothing to do with him. God is not okay with being dismissed by the people that he's made. He doesn't roll over and just accept that. He doesn't roll over and play dead. He refuses to accept that dismissal. He refuses to go away. He refuses to pretend that leaving him out is actually wise, that you can actually understand his world by doing so. God does not agree that there are many wisdoms that are all equal, that truth is relative, that it's a matter of degree, that it's a matter of perspective, that it depends on who has the power. He refuses to accept a world that tries to factor him out of it. But instead of wiping out people and starting all over again, which he could do, he comes to people and he interrupts them. He breaks into their comfortable thought worlds that act like echo chambers, just amplifying the things that they already think, and he challenges their viewpoint in ways that they can't ignore. He pokes at them, prods them to realize that what they've trusted in comes up short, that it doesn't work, that it always lets them down, that it can't even give them a good life here, much less a good life in the future. He challenges the wisdom of this world because it's not based on the way that the world really is. It's not based on the way that he made the world. And God loves the people in this world too much to let them continue to live a lie, at least to live a lie that goes unchallenged. And so he picks fights regularly to expose the lies and delusions of trying to make life work without him. God actively provokes encounters with people who try to cut him out of their life. Encounters that put his people right into the middle of confrontations that God sets up. Encounters that can be dangerous for God's people, but encounters that create opportunities for them to show that God's wisdom is superior to anything that this world has to offer. In other words, you don't have to pick fights with the unbelieving world around you because God will do that for you. And he will throw you into the middle of those fights. That's part of how he advances his kingdom. Now, there were a lot of other people who had been deported along with Daniel and his friends to Babylon. A lot of other people who were not in this moment in danger from the king. They weren't in danger from this particular problem with the king. They had their own opportunities to deal with that God created. And so the book of Daniel is not trying to tell you what every opportunity will look like what every confrontation will look like. Instead, it's giving you the general pattern so that you can figure out how to live your life with wisdom so that you know what to look for in your life, so that you're not surprised when you find yourself in the middle of one of these contests that God sets up, so that you have an idea of how actually to respond well when that time comes. So the question then, I think, this morning is, how do we respond to these times in our lives, these contests, these confrontations? Well, we handle them the same way that Dan Daniel handled his. He handles the fight that God started first with praise, second with confidence that God will stay involved, and third by seeking God for the wisdom that he needs, with praise, with confidence, and with seeking God. First, he handles this fight with praise. It's very tempting to skip over the first half of chapter 2 to find out what the dream is all about. Clearly, verse 19, Daniel knows what the dream was. 
He knows how to interpret it. And so at that point, you'd kind of like to know what it is too, right? I mean, it's got to be pretty important if it's big enough to justify killing off all the king's advisors. There's a lot at stake here. So what's it all about? When you finish the chapter, you realize, wow, that, that's a really cool dream. It's really stunning disclosure about the nature of reality. The king will literally bow down to Daniel. Daniel ends up more successful than he's ever been. And it's tempting to skip over this thanksgiving, prayer, hymn sort of thing in verses 20 to 23. Let's get past this and get to the good stuff, right? It's tempting for an American. Because our temptation is what? It's to see God in the results of life, not in the process of how you actually get to the results. It's very tempting to look beyond all of that. And to be fair, we've been trained that way. We're outcome-based people, results-oriented people. We aim at results. We get paid for results. We're proud of our results. But that's part of the impact of you and me living in our own Babylon. It's the result of us being squeezed into its mold. When you go back to this chapter, you realize that this Thanksgiving prayer in verses 20 to 23 is one of the most significant sections of the chapter. It's the center of gravity for everything else that takes place. It tells you what the source of Daniel's wisdom is, along with the different, why he's done the different things that he has. It sets up the foundation for how he's handled this situation. And it tells you why it is that he's handled it so well. So let's go back and we're going to take a look. What is it that Daniel praises God for? Two things here. Verse 20, two things that belong to God, wisdom and might, or wisdom and power. Daniel praises God that God is the source of all wisdom and that he holds all power. And so it's God, verse 21, who removes kings and who sets up kings. He's the one who's behind all history. Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon look really powerful. They look like they have the ability to ruin your life or to reward your life. But Daniel recognizes they only have that power because God's given it to them. He is the one who sets up kings and who removes kings. He has all power. Secondly, he has all wisdom. Verse 22, he is the one who reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him doesn't dwell with anyone else. He's the one who has the power to direct and shape history. And that means then he's the one who has all wisdom because he alone knows where history is going. But verse 23, he shares that wisdom. He gives his people enough wisdom to understand what he's up to so that we can live out our lives well in a world that often looks chaotic, often looks out of control. God has all wisdom and all power. He sets up kings and he reveals what is hidden. If you know those two things, you can handle well the contests and the opportunities that God gives you. But if you don't know those two things, then no amount of earthly study and learning is going to help you plot a successful course through life. You won't be able to find that pathway through life and have it go well because you're not going to know where history is going. 
you don't know what God is doing here through history. See, the issue here is not, is Babylonian learning useless? That is not what the chapter is trying to say. The question is not, do the Babylonians have any knowledge? Do they know anything? Of course they do. It's not the issue here. They know how to do things. They can build buildings. They can work metal. They can engage in agriculture. They understand basic grammar. They can construct an intelligible sentence. The question in chapter 2 is not, is human learning useless? It's not the contest here. The question is, do the Babylonians have the big picture of what's going on in the universe? Do they understand why the world exists? Do they understand the primary and the fundamental causes of what moves history along? Do they understand where history is going? Do they know how to make decisions today that are going to help them in the future that will line up with where history is going? Or will they make decisions today that are going to end up hurting them? Do they have some sense of the big picture so that they know why they're building houses, why they're working metal, why they're farming, why they're putting sentences together? Do they know what the purpose of all those things is? Do they know what those things are for? And the answer in chapter 2 is no. Not even the wisest, most learned people get it. For all their book learning, they don't know what the world is really like. Why is that? First, because they don't believe that God and God alone stands behind the kings and nations. They don't believe that he is solely responsible for removing them and for setting them up. And secondly, they don't believe that their ability to understand the world is limited. They don't believe that they need verse 21, the wisdom that he gives to the wise and the knowledge that he gives to those who have understanding. The Babylonian wise men do not believe those two things, and consequently, when they are put in exactly the same place as Daniel is, when their worldview is called on to deliver, they have nothing to offer. But if those two things are deep-seated convictions inside of you, that God rules all of history and that he reveals his hidden wisdom to his people, if those two things form the way that you think about and approach the world, if those are the things that you praise God for, then you're going to respond like Daniel did. The question then is, how do you get those beliefs inside of you? How do you, they come to shape the way that you think, and pro, think about and process the world, right? That is, that's the question. Lots of times as Christians, we skip over that internal process. We just want to know, what am I supposed to do in this particular situation? Tell me the things that I'm supposed to do. You realize biblical wisdom is not like that. It doesn't tell you, hey, the next time the king sentences you to death, this is what you ought to do. That would be a very limited kind of lesson out of chapter 2. Instead, what does biblical wisdom do? It gives you principles, basic principles, and then it turns you loose. It sets you free to live them out in the craziness of this world. I've said it this way a number of times. It's a lot like playing jazz. You have to study. You have to learn the chords. You have to understand the riffs and the different progressions. But then you have to go with the moment. You have to improvise. 
These two beliefs that we're talking about, that God rules history and that he reveals wisdom to his people, these are the cords that you have to get inside of you so that when God creates an opportunity that he throws you into, a contest, confrontation, then these two beliefs flow out of you naturally. Now I'm going to take just a moment, pop out of this chapter, and talk about, okay, how do you get them into you? Obviously, you have to pray them inside, right? You have to meditate. You have to draw on them so that they start to permeate all of you. Here's one easy way to do that. Take a piece of paper and draw a line down the center of it. Don't use your computer. Computers don't allow you to slowly go through the process. On one side, start writing out each one of the verses one at a time. Maybe you just write out one line at a time. And as you write that out, you think about what is it that that line actually means? What are the different thoughts that the Spirit of God brings to your mind as you're looking at that line? And then you can write those thoughts on the other side of the paper. You spend some time with each one of those and you let your mind ruminate over them, meditate over them. You study the scripture and you study it by meditating so that it works its way into your mind. But that's not enough. You also have to pray it into you. It has to go beyond your mind and sink down into your soul. And so you take those different lines that you've written and you start to pray. Suggest four things that you can pray. First, you simply praise the Lord for this truth that he's revealing to you. You let yourself be in awe of him for either who he is and what he's revealing or for the way that he's created the world. You adore him for what you see there, for his power, for his wisdom. And then second, you confess where you struggle with what you're seeing. You confess where you haven't seen that truth, or you confess where you struggle to believe it, where you've tended to think that other whiz kinds of wisdom are, are, are just as good. And so first, you praise God for it. Second, you talk with him about where you struggle with what he's showing you. And then third, you thank him for showing you what he's showing you of himself. You thank him for what he's revealing to you, these hidden truths of the world. You thank him that they're no longer hidden from you. You thank him that this passage of scripture is coming true in the very moment that you're talking with him about it. You thank him that he's revealing hidden things to you, that he is the one who's behind all history. And then fourth, you talk to him about how does your life need to change based on what you see there, based on what you've seen about who he is, on what you've confessed, and on what you're thankful for. And you go through those four steps over and over and over until these truths of God start to sink down inside of you, still until they start to form the reality of how you think about and approach God, until they start to form how you think about and approach this world. You praise, you confess, you thank, and you act. In other words, you engage with God personally. You have an interaction with him in that moment because that's where wisdom comes from. Wisdom is not something impersonal that you just get out of a book. Wisdom is this mind and heart of God that he is willing to share with you when you're in a relationship with him. Now, is this the method for how Daniel got it? Who knows? But when you see some re someone respond as quickly as Daniel did, 
you realize that he didn't just get hold of these truths in the moment. They didn't sort of flash and explode in his mind. They already formed the way that he approached the world. They're already part of him. They're an expression of what his relationship with God was like. And you need to have them be just as central to you as they were to him. Which means that you're going to need to take the time and the effort to allow them to become just as central to you. So first, to handle the challenges that God will put you into, you praise God. You praise him that he's in charge. You praise him that he reveals hidden things to his people. Second, and much more quickly, you approach your world with confidence. Confidence that God will keep being involved in ways that further his agenda. Notice what Daniel does when he hears that he's been sentenced to death. He goes to the king. He goes to the one who's ordered his execution, and verse 16, he asks for time. Now, that's the same thing that the king accused the wise men of trying to get for themselves in verse 8. His uh, accusation was that essentially they were stalling, they were playing for time, very dangerous kind of thing then to go and ask for, and yet, when Daniel asks for time, the king doesn't get furious, doesn't execute him on the spot. Instead, the king grants his request. And this is another one of those quiet ways that we keep talking about all through the book of Daniel that shows where God is intervening in the lives of his people. You have to learn to look for these. Daniel gets what he asked for from the king. That's important. That's that outcome. But why did he go? It's because he has confidence that God is going to continue to supernaturally intervene in the things that he's started. And so Daniel is not flustered before God reveals the dream to him. You don't get a sense of a guy wringing his hand saying, oh man, what are, what are we going to do now? You also don't get a sense of someone who's upset with God. He's not mad at God for putting him in this awkward, horrible position. He's not angry beforehand. He's not bitter afterward. Instead, Daniel embraces what God has given him. And he expects that God is going to act now since God is the one who's put this situation together in the first place. He believes that since God moves all of history, that God has to be involved in all of history. And so this piece of history is not out of control. It's not catching God by surprise. God has plans here. This king is one of the kings that God has set up, and at one point, this king is somebody that God will remove. And so Daniel expects God to intervene in the life of this king to accomplish God's purposes. And because Daniel expects God to act, Daniel acts. His belief in God's sovereignty does not make him passive. He's not sitting back waiting. His belief energizes him. He knows that what he's about to do can be fruitful because God is involved. He expects to God to act as he goes and acts. So he gets up and goes to the king. That's point two. Daniel engages this challenge with confidence that God is involved, that God remains involved. And then three, Daniel goes back to God and seeks his wisdom to deal with this situation. After buying time with the king, Daniel goes back to his house, verse 17, and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. 
so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Daniel knows that what he needs does not exist right now on this planet. He knows that there is no way to get this without going to the Lord. So he turns to the Lord and he asks him to intervene again. This time to give him wisdom that he doesn't have so that he can tackle this situation. And notice that Daniel doesn't do this on his own, doesn't act like a lone ranger. Instead, he relies on the community of God's people to help him. He relies on this community to give help him get what he needs so that he can do what God has so clearly dropped him into the middle of. And so he goes back to his friends and says, guys, we need to pray. And I don't mean like, oh yeah, hey, you know, I'll pray for you and then forget about it. I mean, no, we need to pray. Our lives are on the line here. The lives of the rest of the Babylonian wise men are on the line here. Realize Daniel actually really cares about those guys. Verse 24, that he intercedes for them. They says, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. He's not just concerned for himself, not just concerned for his friends. He's concerned for everyone who's under this sentence of death. He's also concerned, scripture passage doesn't say this, but God's reputation here is also on the line. God is making a play to challenge the wisdom of this world to show that the people of Babylon are missing something crucial about him. And so it's not just about Daniel and his friends and the rest of the wise men, it's also about God. Daniel needs God's wisdom for his own life, for the lives of his friends and the other wise men, but Daniel also needs God's wisdom for God's reputation. So Daniel comes back and he makes his need known to the church of his day because he needs the church. It's a big part of what the church is for. It's a big part of what Renewal Main Line is for. We are here to help you with what God throws you into. We're the hospital for you when you're beaten up by that confrontation. We're the training center to help you get ready for that next step in the contest God's got you in the middle of. We're your support system as you tackle the opportunity that God hands you. Church does not replace you on the front lines of engaging this world. Instead, what do we do? We help make it possible for you to do what needs to be done on that front line where God has already deployed you. This is how the church advances in this world. See, the kingdom of God does not depend on great big programs, on church-wide initiatives, on a select group of spiritual leaders. Those things are all great in their place, but the kingdom of God does not depend on any of them. It advances through all of these countless interactions by every one of God's people as they embrace the contests and as they embrace the opportunities that God sets up for them. See, a vibrant, healthy church is one that moves forward because the individual members are looking for where God is creating opportunities for each of them. Opportunities to communicate his wisdom to a world that doesn't have it. It's when we come together that we become better equipped to take advantage of those opportunities. We come together so that we can get what we need from God, so that we can go back out into the world with his wisdom. So if you don't want to be left on the back burner of what God is doing in the world, if you don't want your faith community 
your church to be left on the back burner, then you need to give yourself to the opportunities that God gives you. You need to confidently expect him to stay involved. You need to seek him for wisdom to handle them because that's how he advances his kingdom in this world, which is how it's also been advanced in your life. King Nebuchadnezzar set an impossible task for his advisors, one that if they failed would cost them their lives. It was a sentence of death that they could not possibly avoid. And then out of left field, from a direction that no one expected, they were saved. Someone did the work that they could not do. One person, this Israelite living there in exile, having left his home country to live among them, this one person did the work that appeased the wrath and the anger of the king for all of them. The righteousness of this one person was good enough to cover the failure of all the rest. And then that someone interceded for them and said, don't kill the others. Spare them. I have done what you asked, so now let them live. Let them live before your face. Is that really all that different from your own experience? Because if you're honest this morning, you're far more like the wise men than you are like this one righteous one. The king of kings, the God of heaven, told you to seek him like you seek nothing else, to rely on him like you rely on nothing else. And he's been clear that if you fail, if you don't love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, then you too are under a sentence of death because you will have proved that you don't deserve to be with someone who is that good and that loyal. And you have lived now under the weight of this impossible task. All human beings have. This task that should bring us joy. To love the one who loves. To love the one who is the source of love. That should give us joy. But it doesn't because given who we are as human beings with our sin, it's an impossible task. And it's ended with each of us living under the sentence of eternal death. But then from out of left field, from a direction that no one expected, there came a Savior. Jesus, the wisdom of God and the power of God, became a human being to appease the wrath and anger of God. He did what no one else could do. He lived a perfect life. And that led him into constant conflict with the world around him. Conflict that he never backed away from, even though that conflict escalated over the course of his life until it cost him his life. But in giving up his life, now he can save yours. That's the wisdom of God. Jesus lived the life that you should have lived to fulfill everything that God gave you to do. And he died the death you should have died to make up for all of your failures. And now as your Savior, he comes and he intercedes for you, this righteous one whose righteousness is good enough to cover all the rest of our failures. This righteous one now goes to the Father and says, spare him, spare her. I've done everything right that you've wanted from them. I've paid for everything that they've done wrong. I've done what you asked for. Now, let them live. Let them live before your face. 
That's a God who's worth spending the time to seek, to get to know, to spend time with. That's a God that you can trust when he throws you into situations, confrontations, contests, opportunities. You can trust him to give you what you need in those and you can trust him that he will use your being there to continue to extend his kingdom in the rest of this world. Lord Jesus, thank you for sharing your wisdom with us. Thank you for using your power to rescue us. Lord, thank you that we are not people who are demoralized and crushed. Lord, we are people who rejoice, who are grateful because, Lord, you now sit on the throne. You now rule the world. All authority and all power has been given to you. And you've told us now to go out into this world and to make disciples. Lord, I pray for myself, I pray for my brothers and sisters that we would see the opportunities this week and that we would trust you so that we can take advantage of those. And I pray this in Jesus' name.